Well, good morning, Harvest. It's good to uh, be together, and uh, thank you for joining us today. You know, one of the things that my wife, Carla, and I enjoy doing with our girls is uh, looking at old photo albums. And like many of you, we have a few of those big, bulky, binder-like books sitting in our basement uh, from the early days of our marriage, including our wedding photos, and even some that go before that from our uh, childhood. And perhaps you have some of those gathering dust as well. But um, today, most of our photo albums are digital, and they're stored on either uh, computer hard drives or uh, on websites like Facebook and Instagram. But regardless of the format, it's really the same basic idea. Photo albums are filled with snapshots of people and places and pastimes, and each one tells a story. Each one captures some moment in time. And whether in print or on screen, we love to huddle around these photo albums and, and flip through the snapshots, we love to, to reminisce about days gone by and even re-experience past moments in the here and now. And this morning, I would like us to gather around a different kind of photo album. This one isn't filled with pictures of family vacations or first days at school or birthday parties or breathtaking scenery. Instead, this one is packed with snapshot after snapshot of God's incomparable and immense love for us. You see, from cover to cover, on every page of Scripture is God's amazing love. That is the theme of the Bible. And so for a few of us in this room, uh, perhaps God's love is something that you've not given much time or attention to. You haven't thought a lot about it. Maybe you haven't even heard much about it. But I dare say that for most of us, God's love is something that we know very well intellectually, but it's something that at times we struggle with emotionally and spiritually. It's one of those things that we acknowledge up here, but that we wrestle with down here. And I just want you to know, wherever you are in that spectrum, this message is for all of us. We're going to look at a few of these beautiful pictures. And my hope is that you'll see yourself in at least one of them today, that, that you'll stop and you'll say, hey, that's me right there. That's where I am in my life. I'm experiencing God's love in that way. So that's where we're headed this morning. Why don't you bow your heads with me? We're just going to ask God to speak to us uh, through his word today. Father God, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for the, the message of love that it is to us. God, I thank you for the promises that you make about your word. God, thank you that it does things that my words, any of our words could not do. God, thank you that it is life-giving, that it is life-transforming, that it changes us. And so, God, I pray that uh, your word would not return void today. God, that you would accomplish your perfect purposes in each heart, in each life. God, speak through me to each one, to each heart. God, we give this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you ready for this? Got the idea? All right, here's the first snapshot. And this one is the foundation upon which every other expression of God's love is built. So here it is. You can fill in. I hope you got some notes as you came in, but jot this one down. When I was dead, he revived me. 
When I was dead, he revived me. I want you to notice the first few verses from Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to have these passages on the screen, but feel free as well to follow along in your own copy of God's Word if you like. We're starting in Ephesians chapter 2, and here's the first couple of verses in that uh, message from the Apostle Paul. He writes this. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In, in this passage and many others, the Bible teaches that in our natural state, we're not good. We're not even bad. I hate to tell you, but the, it's actually a lot worse than that. We're dead. We're deceased. We're completely lifeless. And of course, we're not talking about physically, although that is inevitable at some point for all of us. But scripture is speaking to the fact that we're spiritually dead. And you may recall the story in Genesis chapter 3 where the first man and woman on earth, Adam and Eve, where they chose to reject God's ways. And since that day, every person, every person, including you and me, has done the very same thing. And as a result, we we were cut off from the source of spiritual life. We were dead in our trespasses. That's what he says, dead in our trespasses and sins. And there was no hope of recovery. It was a a sad story with a dismal ending. But then notice how the, the narrative unfolds. The next couple of verses in Ephesians 2, he says, But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Because of God's great love for us, he decided to write a new chapter. He wanted a different conclusion to the story. And so, you know, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die on the cross in our place and to take our death and depravity upon himself and to give us his life and his liberty. See, when I was dead, he revived me. And we've, I don't know if you caught the words. I hope you did. We sang this truth in a couple of our songs this morning. I, I just love uh, the, the words of these uh, songs. Uh, listen to these lyrics. It said, you called me out of the grave. You called me into the light. You called my name. And then my heart came alive. Your love is greater. Your love is stronger. Your love awakens me. That's what we're talking about. And we sang, your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began. It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new. Now life begins with you. It's incredible lyrics communicating an incredible truth that when I was dead, he revived me. And if you've turned from your sin and embraced Christ by faith, if you've received his forgiveness and his freedom, then friends, you're alive. You've you've been renewed. You've been resuscitated. You have been revived. And as you flip through the pages of God's photo album, you see yourself in this snapshot of his love. And I hope that's true of so many of us. Many of us, I know it is true, and I hope your heart is just bursting with praise and with thanks because of his abundant mercy and his lavish grace. 
But perhaps you're not in this picture yet. You've never come to grips with your spiritual lifelessness. Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've never understood this message. Maybe you've heard it many times and you know what it's calling you to do, but you have kept it at arm's length. You have resisted it. You have avoided doing anything with it, perhaps for months or even years. Can I just urge you, don't put it off any longer. Simply reach out right now to God, the one who loved you without reservation. And I can just say that after the service, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you to be sure without a, beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have moved from death to life. Because God loves you. And this is the first and the best way that you can experience it. When I was dead, he revived me. Everything else flows out of that truth. Well, here's a second snapshot of God's love. When I'm hurting, he comforts me. When I'm hurting, he comforts me. You know, we do our best to hold it all together. But life is tougher than we'd like to admit. Would you agree with that? Things like strained relationships, marriage and family strife, health challenges, loss of employment, financial hardship, the death of a loved one, or just the the stress and the sadness of everyday life. And these are some of the situations that can cause us deep pain inside. And I want you to know, I, I read through, I pray through the requests that you write in every week on the Connect folder. I know that these that I've mentioned are just some of the burdens being carried even now by our church family. And I want you to know that God doesn't abandon us when life goes south. God doesn't abandon us, far from it. He cares for us at our point of greatest need. That's when he rushes in. I want you to see the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, some beautiful verses. He writes this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. It's a powerful passage. When I'm hurting, he comforts me. But how exactly does God comfort us in our times of distress? I want to suggest two primary ways that I think he meets us in our times of need. First, he comforts us through people. God comforts us through his people. I want you to know one of the reasons that God put us on this earth and has left us here, he hasn't snatched us to be with him in heaven, is because he wants us to care for one another. Around here at Harvest, we refer to this idea as being an uncommon community. The fact that we're bound together as Christ's family. And when one of us hurts, all of us hurt. And we're called to function as as God's comforting touch in each other's lives. And that's why Paul is saying here, that's what he's getting at when he says that the comfort that we've received from God, we should pass on to others. And it's an incredible two-way street. It's It's a reciprocal thing. I might be the person uh, who God is using to bring comfort into your life right now, but I assure you the day is coming when God is going to need to use you to bring comfort to me. It goes both ways. We're in this together. And I'm so thankful for the people in my life, my family, my close friends, the people I work with here on staff, my small group members, 
These people that, that tangibly demonstrate their love and concern for me, especially when I need it most. And I, I'm sure you feel the same way about certain people in your life. They're, they're gracious gifts from the hand of God. And I want you to know, it's not by accident that these encouraging people are part of your life. God put them there intentionally. They're to be his conduits of care. And if you're, if you're struggling today, and if nobody around you knows it, can I just tell you that you are missing out, that you are closing the door to one important means of God's comfort. This is the way that he is intended to meet you in your time of need, through others, through people. He works through people. Secondly, he comforts us through his promises. Through his promises. You see, down through the ages, God's word has brought comfort, incredible comfort in times of trouble. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but have you noticed that people who don't have really any regard for God's word, perhaps have never opened it before, do so at a funeral? Or turn to it when their life is in the pit? Have you ever kind of wondered why that is? Well, it's because God's word is full of passages that bring relief, that bring reassurance, that bring power when we're distressed. I just want you to think of a few of God's promises that can bring us comfort when we're hurting. And I encourage you to jot these three big ones down. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's, that's God's promise of his presence. God promises his presence. Or 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God promises his supernatural power in our lives. Philippians 4, 19 says, my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Friends, God promises his provision. God promises his provision. And I could go on, we could recount promise after promise, but I'm telling you, the Bible is chock full of them. And these aren't just empty promises like so many of the promises that you and I make, ones that we we have the greatest of intentions to follow through on, but so often fall short. No. When God resolves to do something, when he, he promises this or he promises that, I'm telling you, he always comes through, always. God cannot go against his word. So saturate yourself, just marinate in the promises of God. They are one of the major tools that God wants to use to comfort us in our times of need. There's a a Christian song from a few years ago that had a line that said, sometimes he calms the storm and other times he calms his child. And for whatever reason, God may not be ready to calm the storm in your life, to, to bring relief to the specific need, the specific hurt, the specific pain point. But he does want to calm you in the midst of it. He wants to, to comfort you through his people and through his promises. And I just urge you to lean into that truth today. When I'm hurting, he comforts me. That, that's the second snapshot of God's love. And I ask you, can you see yourself in it today? Are you in that picture? Have you been or are you now on the receiving end of God's tender loving care in the midst of your pain? Don't push him away. Don't keep him at arm's length. Run to him, reach out to him, allow God's comfort to minister to you in your hurt today. 
So we're looking at some snapshots of God's love. When I was dead, he revived me. When I'm hurting, he comforts me. And here's a third one I want us to consider. When I'm uncertain, he guides me. When I'm uncertain, he guides me. God demonstrates his love by bringing clarity in the midst of uncertainty and by, by guiding us step by step. And we see this truth, this reality, all through the pages of, of the Bible. It was the experience, if you remember, of the, the children of Israel as they escaped their bondage in Egypt and journeyed toward the blessings of the promised land. And writing of that in Exodus 15, verse 13, it says, speaking of the Lord, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. See, when the Israelites were uncertain about where to go or how to get there or what they'd face when they did get there, God miraculously guided them to their destination. And do you remember how he did that? Pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Don't you kind of wish that he still did that? It was so cool. But he did that as an act of love. Do you see that right in the verse? You have led in your steadfast love. His leadership, his guidance, his direction was a sign of his love for his people. I'm reminded of um, another story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, perhaps less familiar, but uh, Jehoshaphat was the, the king of Judah at the time. And he learned that the, the Moabites had assembled a, a powerful coalition of enemy nations. And these allied forces were camped nearby and they were poised to attack. And the king and his people were filled with fear, and rightly so. They, they, their backs were up against the wall. Humanly speaking, they didn't really have a chance. And they were desperate for some direction from the Lord. And I just, I love King Jehoshaphat's simple prayer. This is just his genuine acknowledgement to the Lord. And this is what he said. And he did this before all of the people in the assembly of the people. And I think it's a wonderful model for our own prayer when we're in circumstances like this when we don't know what to do. He said, we do not know what to do. This is verse, 20, uh, verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 20. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, God, uh, we're uncertain, and we, we desperately need your guidance. And we've all been there, I think. I know I have been there. That's where some of us are right now. And, and I just find such reassurance in the words of of Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. You'd probably know them well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. There's a wonderful truth, a wonderful promise in these verses of, of divine direction in times of indecision. But the promise is a conditional one. You see, God's guidance requires something. It requires our complete trust. So, when the Israelites failed to fully rely upon the Lord and instead started to depend on their own wisdom, their own strength, their own might, do you remember what happened? God removed his hand. God stopped leading them and he left them to languish in the desert for 40 years. A whole generation died out. And God shows us his love by, by guiding us through the uncertainties of life. But first, friends, first we must trust him without reservation. That's what this passage is telling us. 
the word trust here has the idea of lying face down, utterly helpless before God. And it calls us to acknowledge him, which means to, to recognize our desperate need for the Lord. And he says, we're not to, to lean, we're not to, to rest our weight on our own understanding, our own resources, which by the way are pretty feeble, pretty meaningless, pretty insufficient. And instead, Solomon calls us to rely upon God with all our heart and in all our ways. And, and when you sum all of that up, really what it's saying is that there's no holding back. It's all or nothing. God expects us to trust him with our everything. And when we do that, when we do trust him with our everything, he promises to guide us. He promises to, to make our paths straight. Or really the idea is to keep us on track. That's how the message translates, to keep us on track. When we trust God completely, when our, our full dependence is upon him, he guides us with our ultimate good and with his unyielding glory in mind. And it, it all sounds so simple, doesn't it? I mean, just rely upon the Lord and he will direct us. But, I, but I'm sure you'd agree with me that it's incredibly difficult to trust God like that. Especially when things are uncertain. When we don't know what's ahead. And plus, we, we live in a culture that pushes us, that squeezes us into this mold of fierce independence. You can do it. Just muscle up and make it happen. And I think oftentimes as Christ followers, we talk a big talk about being fully dependent on God, but, but our actions speak louder than words. And more often than not, we trust him with very little. God, you, you can have this little piece of my life. I'll trust you with that. But all of this over here, I think I just kind of need to keep my hands on the wheel. Do you know what I'm talking about? And I'm convinced that many of us here today are in, are in need of God's direction, of God's guidance. Life is filled with uncertainties and, and you long for him to lead you along the best possible route. You want him to, to steer you in the right direction. I've got great news for you. God is ready and willing to smooth out the path under your feet and, and to go on that journey with you. But he's waiting for you to trust him with your everything. To trust him with your everything. And I just ask you, what is holding you back from that today? Why, why, why be reticent about it? Is God not entirely trustworthy? Has God not been faithful in the past? Will God not be faithful again tomorrow? I tell you, he will. He is entirely trustworthy. He won't let you down. He will not leave you hanging. He will not disappoint you. When I'm uncertain, he guides me. That's the third snapshot of God's love. And I ask you, are you in that picture? Are you experiencing God's loving guidance as you learn day by day, step by step to trust him, to to hold nothing back from his sovereign hand. I'm telling you, his love is available to you today. Here's a fourth snapshot. When I disobey, he disciplines me. When I disobey, he disciplines me. No, it's not a mistake, it's not a typo. That is one of the ways that God shows his love toward us is by disciplining us when we get out of line. We see this in Hebrews chapter 12. 
Follow as I read, beginning at verse five, the author says, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And have you forgotten? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Did you catch that? These verses tell us that when God disciplines us, it proves, it proves that we are his dearly loved children. In other words, God's discipline is a sign of fatherly love. And I think that most parents recognize that discipline is perfectly normal. In fact, it's a necessary aspect of healthy, loving family life. And I'm not sure that I would have agreed with that when I was a child. But, um, you know, over the last 10 years of being a parent, I have come face to face with that reality. That when a, a child doesn't do what he should do or does do what he shouldn't do, he or she needs to suffer the consequences whatever they may be. And here's the the flip side of the coin. The dad who fails to discipline his child, this applies to mothers as well, but the dad who fails to discipline his child is deficient as a father. He's not fulfilling his, his full responsibilities as a dad. He's not expressing love in all its necessary dimensions. And the child that escapes his father's discipline is missing out on a vital part of his dad's care. He's walking through life without the loving correction of his father. And as a result, he's not everything he could or should be. We've we've all seen disheartening examples of that in life, right? And friends, I'm just telling you, we're so grateful that our heavenly father doesn't hesitate to discipline us. He, He doesn't worry about what we'll think or how we'll react or whether this is going to cause a rift in the relationship. He does what's best every time. And when we disobey him, when we disobey his word or displease him in some way, he's going to bring correction. Look at verse 9, Hebrews 12. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, that's speaking of our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Is that not the understatement of the year? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, not only does God's discipline prove his fatherly love, but it also produces spiritual growth. When we receive God's discipline with a proper perspective, with an understanding that it's for our ultimate good, it helps us to move from a posture of disobedience to a posture of obedience. And rather than seeking to do our own thing and go our own way, we instead want to please him. We we want to live holy lives. We want to live righteous lives. We want to be more godly. Bible teacher and Harvest founder James McDonald is known for saying, God's love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. 
God's love, friends, is, isn't primarily about making our lives easier, happier. Now, first and foremost, his love is about conforming us to the image of Christ. It's about developing, cultivating the character of Jesus in each one of us. And even though God's discipline is unpleasant in the moment, just like with our earthly parents, in the end, it produces transformational results when we submit ourselves to it. Listen, the fruit of discipline is worth the price of the pain. The fruit of discipline is worth the price of the pain. Now, I'm very confident that in a group this size, there are some who identify with this snapshot right now. You know who you are. You're a child of God, but you're rebelling against him. You're doing your own thing, and your disobedience could be very outward and obvious to everyone around you. You might be here under duress, under protest today. Or your disobedience could be very hidden. It could be tucked away in the deep recesses of your heart where no one else knows. I want you to hear me, friends. Your heavenly father loves you too much to let you stay there. He wants you to live a life of righteousness, a life of holiness. And so he is exercising his parental right. He is fulfilling his paternal responsibility to discipline you. He's bringing into your life the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He is bringing the the correction of tough circumstances to get your attention. And you're not enjoying it. Truth be told, you may be ticked off with God. But it's for your own good. And it comes from a heart of love. God loves you so much and, and he... He wants you to be holy, and his discipline proves it. So don't don't ignore it. Don't fight it. Don't resist it. Submit to it. Submit to it, because when I disobey, he disciplines me. And that leads us to the fifth and the final snapshot. It really flows out of the fourth. And it's this, that when I repent, he welcomes me. When I repent, he welcomes me. God's love is so great that when we come back to him after living in disobedience, when we return with a a humble and a contrite heart, he welcomes us home with open arms. He he receives us, he embraces us as his long lost children. It's an awesome demonstration of love. And again, we see this principle throughout the pages of scripture, but nowhere more clearly than in the story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, I want us to just to touch on that as we wrap up this morning. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And just pause there. Let's not miss what's happening. The younger son isn't asking for his weekly allowance. He's asking for his share of the inheritance. To bottom line, he's essentially telling his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't know about your house, but that wouldn't go over big in my house. And it certainly wasn't something that you did in the first century in a Middle Eastern culture. I mean, it was a sign of total disrespect, of outright rebellion. And yet amazingly, the father grants the son's request and he gives him the share, his share of the estate early. 
Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. The son grabs his stuff, takes a trip to a far off place where he's free to do whatever he wants. No parents, no rules, no responsibilities, no expectations. He lives it up. He parties hard. He enjoys every pleasure that money can buy. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So before long, the inheritance is gone. There's a food shortage sweeping across the land and desperate times call for desperate measures, right? And so the son finds a job feeding pigs of all things. And keep in mind for the original Jewish audience, pigs are the most unclean of all animals. I mean, it's no... Stay away. I mean, there is uh, no pulled pork there, all right? No, no bacon and eggs, right? This is like something to be avoided at all costs. But I mean, this job is as humiliating and as demeaning as it can get for a Jewish boy. And like how low do things have to get for pig slop to look appetizing? Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I'm perishing here with hunger. I will arise, I will go to my father, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. So eventually it dawns on the son that while he's starving, his father's farmhands are enjoying three square meals a day. But I think more importantly than that, he's, he's finally overcome with shame. He, he knows what he's done. He recognizes what he has done to his father, how he has disgraced his dad. And so he decides to, to put away his pride, to return to his father, to confess his sinfulness, and to just plead for mercy. He's well aware that his actions have fractured the relationship with his father, and so much so that he'll be lucky to be treated as a hired hand, let alone a son. Look at the end of verse 20. But while he, that's the son, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Has the father written off his son? Not a chance, not a chance. Has he closed the door on reconciliation? No, he, this is the day he has been longing for. This is the day he has been waiting for. Day after day, he's been walking to the end of his driveway, peering down the road, looking like, could this be the day? Son, are you coming today? No, not today. Could this be the day? No, not today. And then finally, there he is in the distance. And the lovesick father takes off as fast as he can to meet his son and to embrace him and to kiss him and to welcome him home. Verse 21, the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the breast robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
and they began to celebrate. The son starts into his heartfelt apology, but his father cuts him short. And rather than treating him as a hired hand, he welcomes him, he lavishes love on him, he gives him many fine gifts, and he receives the young man as his son, and he, he reestablishes him to a position of honor. The past is all forgotten. It, it's, it's all forgiven. It's done. It's gone. I think we get that the father in this story represents our heavenly father and that many times we're the younger son. We do our own thing. We disobey our father. And as we talked about earlier, he disciplines us as a sign of his love. He interjects into our life to get our attention and to help us grow up as his children. And, and sometimes I fear that when we're far away from the Lord and we know it, we know we're far from him, we, we desperately want to turn around and come home. We don't like where we are. We want to be back in, the, in our father's home. But we're afraid that he won't welcome us back. We think, I, I've been gone too long. He, he has to have given up on me by now. Or I've, I've done too much bad stuff. There's no way he could look past it all. I've failed too many times. I've long since exhausted his grace. You ever been there in life? I think some of you maybe are there right now. And I want to reassure you, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how long you've been gone. Don't listen to the lies of the evil one. Your heavenly father is eagerly awaiting your homecoming. And when you approach him with a remorseful heart, with a, with a genuine desire to change, he will receive you with arms open wide. And you can see yourself in the snapshot. This story can be your story. When I repent, he welcomes me. He welcomes me. You can see yourself in the snapshot. It's God's love. And I urge you, don't waste any more time. Return to him today. I'm gonna invite you to, to bow your heads right now as we close. Just bow your heads. I said at the outset that my hope was for each of us to identify with at least one of these pictures, at least one snapshot. I just want to ask you, did you see yourself in any one of those today? Is there one in mind? When I was dead, he revived me. When I'm hurting, he comforts me. When I'm uncertain, he guides me. When I disobey, he disciplines me. And when I repent, he welcomes me.